I am still not used to being called Pastor Nick Haight. I'm just Nick. I've always been just Nick. <laughs> and uh, it's really a privilege to be here with all of you. I mean, the last time I was uh, addressing the majority of you, yeah, we were in the Panis' home and, and we were talking about what's to come, you know, and, and here we are now. What's to come has come and there's still more to come, you know, and, and uh, it's, it's really just about faithfulness, isn't it? I mean, who are we? Uh, who are we to be used by the king of the universe to build his church? Uh, we're not rock stars. Uh, we're just spirit-filled believers in Christ who want to follow him faithfully. Isn't that right? And that's what he uses because all glory goes to him. I mean, uh, that's what we want. We, we want to exalt and proclaim Christ. We want him to be Jesus be glorified, Jesus be magnified. And, and, and as long as, as that remains our chief goal, our chief end, our chief purpose, then we have every reason to believe that he will continue to use us. We can't in any way predict the future, just like I didn't, couldn't predict when I was where you guys are at right now. Ten years from now, we'd, we'd still be serving Christ as the Cornerstone Bible Church. And I can't predict what will happen in ten years from now for you guys, but if you're faithful... You'll be serving him, won't you? You'll be, you'll be being used by him, won't you? And, in the, in the, and, and you'll, be, you'll be being used in ways that you never imagined from where you are right now. Because he wants to grow you and he wants to make you um, the person that he wants to use you uh, in great ways. And your, your life is an offering, as we sang. And if that's, if that's what you want, to let your life be an offering. If you find fulfillment in that, that your life would be, if it's poured out for the Lord, it's, it's poured out for the greatest cause in all of the, of the created universe. If that's your desire, then he will use you. And not just in the here and now, but for all eternity. That's his plan, is to use you and satisfy you and give you joy, increasing joy. So it, it's, a, it's a great blessing to be here to encourage you. I mean, we started in a school. It wasn't as nice as this. There's nothing classical about the school we started in. Uh, it was a big auditorium. It was an echo chamber. So this is, this is very nice. You got colorful chairs. You got everything. This is and, they, and they recline. Um, and that's kind of dangerous because, see, I'm not as active as Angelo is uh, in, his, in, in my preaching. He's, he's loud and he probably paces all over the place around here. I've never been able to compete with Angelo and his energy. So uh, I will do my best to keep your attention this morning. just want to encourage you uh, from the book of Acts this morning. If you'd like, you can turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going through... So in the, in the 10 years that we've been um, together as a church, we started in the book of John, the Gospel of John, and then we went to Ephesians, and then we went to... Galatians, and then we went to Ruth, and now we're in the book of Acts. So we're just marching through, through the scriptures, just in the same way as, as I'm sure Angelo and whoever else is a part of the preaching here will be doing with you as well. It's a great blessing to just walk through the scriptures, as we know, uh, to gain from the context and just the flow. Let the Lord choose what comes next, not what we want. Um, so let's be in Acts chapter 9. I'll be reading from verse 32, but I'll get to that in just a second. I want to I ask you a question first before we read the scriptures and then pray together. Um, here's something I want you to chew on. Just think about this right now. Which is better 
being faithful in ministry or being effective in ministry? Which is better, being faithful in ministry or effective in ministry? For the first, for the first five chapters of the book of Acts, the author, Dr. Luke, he, he showed us the he shows us the, the central role that the Apostle Peter played in the early days of the church. And the Spirit of God, he emboldened him to preach, to witness, to lead to great effect. He used Peter to grow the church. He grew it numerically. He grew it spiritually. And since the end of, of chapter 5 in the book of Acts, Luke has drawn the attention to other important men in Scripture. Men like Stephen, uh, Philip, and then Saul. And one of Luke's purposes for this is to show how the Lord is, is providentially leading his church. He's, he's going to lead it out of the confines of Judaism to where it will fully embrace a, a, a direct mission to the Gentile church of which we are the fruit of this. So the, the progression began with the disciples being driven out of Jerusalem by persecution, which followed the death of the first martyr, which was Stephen. And this led directly to the ministry of Philip, who, which resulted in the, the conversion of the half-Jews, which were the Samaritans, and to also to an Ethiopian official who would then take the gospel to the continent of Africa. And following this was then the surprising conversion of Saul, the man who would become the apostle to the non-Jewish world. And as Jesus once told Ananias, he said, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So Luke is about to, co uh, to cover another key event in this outward progression of the gospel in chapter 10 with the conversion of a Gentile centurion and his friends in the town of Caesarea. That's about to happen in chapter 10. But before we get there, Luke wants us to see what Peter has been up to in his ministry because our eyes have been off Peter for a little while and, and, and he's bringing it back now in chapter 9. So that's just a little background to what we're going to be looking at. So let's look at chapter 9 and verses 32 and I'll be reading down to 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, and there he found a, name, a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the, resident, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down, and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. 
and she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Why don't we pray together? Lord, as we come together as a family in Christ to your word, it's our hope that you would minister to us by your spirit, using the word to encourage us in our walks with Christ, to show us how we can minister effectively for our Savior. We need to be trained up. We need to be ready to put our hands to the plow and not look back. Our desire should be to see Christ exalted. Our desire should be to encourage and build one another up, for it is a difficult task. And it is easy to grow discouraged along the way. It is easy to be tempted and drawn aside by uh, lesser things. So, Lord, our desire is to be faithful to you, and that, and that in our faithfulness to you, Lord, you might make us effective for you. That's our desire, and we pray that you'll use your word this morning towards that end. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke highlights Peter's ministry in two locations, Lydda and then Joppa. And I'd like to draw your attention to how Luke summarizes the impact of Peter's ministry in verses 35 and then in verse 42. He says, as a result of Peter's ministry, verse 35 says that all who lived in Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord. And then in Joppa, many believed in the Lord. So it's easy to attribute the great response to the miraculous events that, that, that took place here. The healing of a man bedridden for eight years and then the raising from the dead of a, of a beloved disciple of Christ. And as, as significant as, as those events were, we know from the Lord's own ministry that it, it takes more than miracles to bring people to faith in Christ. On more than one occasion, Jesus was rejected by all those who witnessed his miracles. We see it in John chapter 6. We see it in John chapter 10. Even though they were clearly revealing who he was, people didn't want to see. They couldn't see. So let me bring you back to that question that I asked you at the outset. Should we seek to be faithful or effective in our ministry, both individually and as a church? Which should it be? Well, many churches are, are, are good at one or they're good at the other. Churches that prioritize faithfulness, they, they make mature disciples of Christ, but they don't always reach the lost. Churches that prior, prioritize effectiveness, they reach the lost, but they don't often make mature disciples. And so, so which is it? Well, I think... I think Luke's brief description here of Peter's ministry, it shows us that faithfulness and effectiveness in ministry, they must go hand in hand. The gospel calls us to be both faithful to equip the saints and effective in reaching the lost. Faithfulness and effectiveness can't be separated. Churches that grow wide without growing deep are not producing fruit that's going to last. And churches that grow deep without growing wide are not as deep as they think. See, we need faithful and effective 
churches. So the Apostle Peter, he's been both faithful and effective in his ministry. Uh, He had faithfully preached to the masses to great effect in Jerusalem. And in this passage, Luke shows us the other side of Peter's ministry, which was actually rather personal. There are some important elements of ministering faithfully and effectively for Christ that that are implied in this descriptive passage here. And from Peter's direct teaching, but, but not indirectly, but also indirectly from what he did. So we would do a disservice to Peter, as well as to ourselves, if we simply listed a bunch of principles. Right? And then we assumed that if we, if we do those principles, if we follow them, well then our ministry is going to be just like Peter's. Well, here's what Peter tells us. He tells us this in, in his epistle, first epistle, Chapter 4, verse 11, he he says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So in all your ministry, in what you speak, And what you do, God's glory in Jesus Christ must be your goal. True, effective ministry seeks to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter exalted Christ in the following six ways. He encouraged the people of Christ. He emphasized the hope of Christ. He expressed his need of Christ. He expected the power of Christ. He exhibited the love of Christ. And he enhanced the unity of Christ. And so if if we are to follow Peter's example here, the same is going to be true for us. To minister faithfully and effectively for Christ, you must seek to exalt the person of Christ. I hope that you'll see overall from this morning's message. To To minister faithfully and effectively for Christ, you must seek to exalt the person of Christ. Now Luke doesn't tell us why Peter was traveling here. But it's likely that Peter saw himself as responsible for coming alongside these fledgling churches that were springing up as the gospel expanded outside of Jerusalem. Verse 31, it tells us that the church continued to increase. So the growing church requires the help of the apostles. And Peter apparently saw himself as, as responsible for personally providing the help to help, the help these weak and struggling believers needed. Now Saul has spent, spent the last two weeks with Peter in Jerusalem. He'd likely heard about the Lord's calling to be a witness to the Gentiles. And remember, it wasn't entirely clear at this point in the life of the church what the relationship of the church to to Judaism was to be, if any. This was all unclear at this point in time. And so given the increasing rate at which the church was growing outside of Jerusalem, Peter likely desired to visit these new followers of Christ that, that he might encourage them personally. And verse 32 hints at just how much traveling Peter was doing during this time. It says, now as Peter was traveling through all these regions... He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So Peter Peter had been charged personally by Christ to shepherd his flock, to feed his sheep. The risen Christ had charged him with this. And we see that, that 
Peter indeed took that command to heart. He remained faithful to it throughout the remainder of his ministry. Uh, he would later write, and again, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, in the first three verses, he said, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples for the flock. You know, Peter can't be everywhere. The elders can't be everywhere in a church. How are they to shepherd the flock then? It's easy while it's small, so to speak. But a church grows. And one of the ways that elders care for the flock, especially as churches grow larger than just a few dozen, it's by organizing the church into smaller groups with trained leaders who are overseen by the elders. In the work of, of the ministry, as it says in chapter 4, verse 12 of Ephesians, the members minister to each other under the oversight of the elders. And this is the way that, that we have grown up in Christ at Community Bible Church, many of us. This is the way we sought to do it at the Cornerstone Bible Church as we launched out 10 years ago. And this is what you guys are seeking to do here. Right? Each of the elders in our church are leading a home fellowship group. And within those groups, men are being trained up to be leaders of small groups. In Peter's visits to these new churches, they were certainly a great source of encouragement and instruction to those who were seeking to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. And this was true for the church as a whole. But it is equally true on an individual basis. It's your, if it's your desire to minister faithfully and effectively for Christ, then you need to first of all make it your priority to encourage the people of Christ. Encourage the people of Christ. While God has charged the elders to shepherd the flock, each of you play a key part when you gather together in small groups like our home fellowship groups, for example, right? where you help each other hold fast to your hope and you stay strong in the Lord. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 really quick. Look, let's look together there. Hebrews chapter 10. A well-known verse, verse 24. The author there says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's from this verse that we see that it's, it's God's plan for our good that encouragement come from Christians speaking God's word into each other's lives and from praying for each other. So God's purpose is that we would be stirred up to love and good deeds by each other. Mutual encouragement blesses both the individual as well as the whole body. God wants us to be in intentional about this. It should be one of the purposes why we gather. He tells us that when the saints gather for the purpose of encouragement, you should be there. This is his way of caring for us. He charges elders to oversee this. Make sure that this is happening. But it's in the smaller gatherings where believers 
practice the one another's of Scripture, to, to love one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another. And this is what completes the work of shepherding. Now lastly, notice that this kind of gathering into smaller groups to encourage each other, it's increasingly urgent as the, te- as the end times draw near. Right? He says in verse 25, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul told Timothy, in, in the last days, difficult times will come. Have you noticed that it's, it's not getting any easier to be a Christian? God is telling us what we need to do to hold fast to our hope until the end. We need to be meeting regularly. We need to meet often for the purpose of encouraging one another with God's word. That's what we need to do. Christ is exalted when we do this because we are obeying him and we're relying on his strength, which he provides us through his spirit, through his word. Every Christian needs to be committed both to give and to receive encouragement. God commands us for the purpose of our good and for our joy. His will is that you help shepherd the people of God by being there at the times when they gather for the purpose of encouragement so that you can help to stir up each other to love and good deeds. And if you desire to minister faithfully and effectively for Christ, then be committed to encouraging his people with his word, which exalts Christ. And so Peter is at Lydda, we're told, Lydda is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, 10 miles southeast of the seacoast city of Joppa. And it was an important city as roads passed through it that went from Egypt to Syria, from Joppa to Jerusalem. Today, it's the location of an international airport. Now, when Peter arrived there, verse 33 tells us that he found a man, a man there named Aeneas who, was, who had been bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. Now, one observation that we can make here about Luke's description of Aeneas is Luke calls him a man. Now, that's nothing significant, really, until we contrast it if we look at what Luke's description of Tabitha, or Dorcas, is a little ways down the road, whom he calls a disciple. So this suggests that Aeneas probably was not a believer. And if we consider all of Scripture, at least the Gospels, In the New Testament, there's no examples of believers being healed. Only unbelievers. Raised from the dead, yes, we have examples of that, but not healed. So we're not told how Aeneas was paralyzed. All we know is that he's been this way for at least for eight years, and he would likely remain so for the rest of his life. So because Peter was committed to the encouraging of the people of Christ, it put him in the place where he would significantly impact the life of Aeneas and perhaps even bring him to faith in Christ and be used of God to bring a large number of people in the surrounding region to faith in Christ. Verse 34 says, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. Eight years of paralysis was overwhelmed in in just a moment. Immediately he got up, it says. Signifying several things here. If you remember the healing, 
This healing, it's very similar to when Jesus healed, healed the paralytic that was lowered down through the roof. Remember that scene in the Gospels? Jesus commanded the man to get up, pick up his bed, and walk. In both these miracles, they are meant to make a very clear statement to us. There is hope in Christ. There is always hope in Christ. Christ is able to reverse the devastating effects of sin and the fall. And he can and he often does reverse the effects of sins in this world. And Jesus truly came to restore a broken and a cursed creation. And one day that reversal will be whole and it will be complete. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth where all the effects of sin have been removed. There's going to be no disease. There's going to be no paralysis. But that's not the main hope that he came to give us. Jesus made it clear that he came to provide the means for the forgiveness of sins. This is the hope that we get to offer the world through the gospel. And if you desire to exalt Christ, and if you desire to minister effectively for Christ, then you need to make it your priority to emphasize the hope of Christ. It's the second way to be applying this sermon today. You need to emphasize the hope of Christ. The hope that we sinners have in Christ, it's encapsulated in the gospel. Look at me at Colossians chapter 1. Turn there, would you? Colossians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 15. We want to read this amazing text together. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. See, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the one through whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. And this one in whom the fullness of deity dwelled and who reconciled all things to himself, he made peace with God for you through the cross. You were once alienated from him. You were hostile towards him. You weren't just indifferent, you were hostile. You were actively rebelling against him. And yet, what did he do? He reconciled you to God through his death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and perfect. 
There is no sweeter message of hope in all the world than this, friends. And this is the hope of the gospel. Do you know what this means? Do you understand the implications of this for you? It means that when you wake up in the morning, feeling miserable, depressed, with a sense of guilt and separation before a holy God, it means you have hope even then. The hope of the, of, of the gospel says that, that you can go to bed that night. You can go to bed tonight with a quiet and peaceful heart knowing that every sin that you have ever committed or will ever commit is forgiven and that you are reconciled to the almighty God by the death of his perfect son. That is the hope of the gospel that he offers to you freely in Christ. You may still be waiting on God to heal you. You're not paralyzed like Aeneas was. But you're, you're suffering in some way. And your, your hope is for healing. Because of Christ, I can assure you, on the authority of his word, I can assure you that healing will come. It may not be in this life. But if your hope is in Christ, it will come. Now, while you're waiting on the Lord for that, you need to offer this hope that you have to one another. Offer it to those who are without God and without this hope. Tell sinners that there's hope for them. There's hope for you even though you think God would never forgive what you've done. You can tell someone that. It's God's desire to to convince people of this. And how can I say this? Because he made sure that the authors of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that they included accounts of how Jesus forgave prostitutes, traitors, adulterers, murderers, rebellious, wicked, ungrateful sons. So he can forgive you. Amen? He can forgive you. Now Paul loved to give hope to those that he wrote to. He said this in, to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. He said, Now may, the, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort, and may he strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. See, grace is the foundation for hope. As long as there is grace available in Christ, there's hope available in Christ. There's always hope with Christ. He loves to be exalted as the one who gives hope to those who are without it. So therefore, if you desire to minister faithfully and effectively, then you need to emphasize the hope of Christ. So the physical picture of hope in Christ as seen in the healing of Aeneas, it made this widespread and dramatic impact upon the people of Lydda. Not just Lydda though, even the surrounding area we're told. Verse 35 says, And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, that is Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. And if we balk at the word all, all who lived there and saw Aeneas. 
turn to the Lord. If we balk at that word all, then we don't understand the power and the grace of God. Everyone who lived in these areas turned from their sin to the Lord. Now, as amazing as the, as the healing of Aeneas was, the miracle of Joppa was even more spectacular. Look at verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, he sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used, used to make the, uh, while she was with them. So while Peter was at Lydda, tragedy strikes the church in nearby Joppa. A beloved woman and a disciple named Tabitha had become sick and died. Tabitha is an Aramaic name and because his Greek-speaking readers would be unfamiliar with that name, Luke provides the Greek equivalent, which is Dorcas. Not one of the popular biblical names that we name our children for obvious reasons, but both names mean gazelle. So if you want to be kind and, and kind of witty at the same time, don't call someone a dork, call them Dorcas, and you're actually complimenting them. You're calling them a gazelle in the Greek. So Tabitha died while Peter was just a mere 10 miles away at Lydda. Nothing is by chance with God, is it? These things happen for, for reasons because God is orchestrating your life. The circumstances that you're in right now, personally, may not be to your liking, but don't ever for a moment think that God isn't fully over them. He, he wants His Son to be glorified in your response to the situation that you're going through, whether it's the job is not well, the children are not what they should be, the home is not what I wanted, the income is not what we need, and so on and so forth. The neighbors are terrible. And then you turn to the Lord and say, and you've done all this, God, and I need to see how I can exalt you in it. What have you for me to do to glorify you in it? That's a difficult thing to do. That's why this is a walk of faith. You have to believe that God in His sovereignty has orchestrated the events of your life. The circumstances that you're in, that you don't know which way to go. Well, God does, because he created it all. So your prayer should be, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to glorify you. Direct my steps, please. And so that's what is happening here. Ten miles away, uh, Tabitha dies. And the believers in Joppa, they heard Peter was there, which seems to have given them some interesting idea. Right? They, they began the normal preparations for her burial. But then they did something that was uncustomary. Instead of burying her the very day that she dies, which would be the custom, they laid her body in an upper room. And then they, they sent men off to Joppa to urge Peter to come without delay. What a great example of love and care that we see in Peter. He simply arose and he went with him. Right? There's a need I can help with. Well, I'm here to help the churches, so I don't know if I can help or not, but I'll go with you. That's basically what Peter was saying. And so when Peter arrived, they took him to the upper room where her body is laid, 
And around him were the widows whom she had obviously been this great blessing to because they were weeping and they were holding their hand, uh, in their hands the garments that Tabitha had made for them. Now I know we're focused on, on Peter's example here primarily, but, but I want to uh, throw in an important point that we learn here from the life of Tabitha. If you desire to minister faithfully and effectively, then you must exhibit the love of Christ. Exhibit the love of Christ. See, when it comes to love, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. The gospel of Christ is very practical. Through, through doing so many good deeds, Tapatha became beloved by many. Their tears are a testament to how great her loss was to them. You know, this isn't necessarily a goal, but really this is what should happen. If you were to die this week, there should be people weeping at the loss of you. Not the, not the sadness of death, not the loss to the children, not lo lo the loss to the family of a mother or a son or a father, but the loss over the good that you are doing in the lives of people. That's what should happen. Death should be a time of weeping, of I can't imagine not having her or him in my life. They did so much good. They encouraged me in Christ. They were a constant source of blessing to me. We should all be striving to be that way. Not for the sake of being able to somehow stand and watch, oh, who's crying for me? But because your loss would be greatly felt in the lives of those that you were doing good to. So the widows displayed the clothes that she had made for them. They're showing Peter about her generosity, about how kind she was, as if to say, Peter, please, you must do something. We can't lose her. So you exalt Christ when you exhibit the love of Christ in very practical ways. Christianity has a gospel of salvation from sin. And flowing from that gospel is a practical calling to turn from sin, to believe on Christ. But if, but if they've done that, then that same gospel calls everyone to serve others also. It doesn't end with salvation. It begins with salvation. And the gospel keeps drawing out of you love and good deeds. We stimulate it in one another and then we pour it out into one another's lives. Do you realize that, that before the coming of Christ, there were no hospitals in the world? Doctors, but there was no hospital where you could take your loved one who was sick and have them be treated. But when Christianity came on the scene, the light of medicine flowed, followed, and, and hospitals were founded everywhere where Christianity was. Before Christ, there were no orphanages in the world. Unwanted babies were left out to die. Unwanted children had to fend for themselves, and if they'd survived life on the streets, well, many of them would just simply end up as male or female prostitutes. I'm talking about the time of the, of when the church began. No one cared for lepers. There was no disaster relief. 
There were not even any great schools in the ancient world. Christianity changed the landscape. It is Christians who have gone into the cities of the world and who have hunted out the poor, the young, the uneducated. They brought them into schools to train them and to give them skills that enable them to become something other than, the, than the, what we would say destiny chose for them. See, that, that's biblical Christianity. And so here's Tabitha, simple disciple, doing exactly this and having a tremendous impact upon these widows, these ladies who had lost their source of protection and provision in the world. Tabitha said, I will help provide for you. In what practical ways are you exalting Christ by exhibiting the love of Christ? So they had asked Peter to come in the amazing hope that death could be overturned. I mean, that's what they were thinking, obviously. Don't bury her. Put her upstairs and call for Peter. Verse 40 says, Peter sent them all out. And he knelt down and he prayed. Now, when Peter healed Aeneas, remember what he said? Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. So Peter was not seeking to exalt or promote himself. Peter understood what his role in all this was. He understood it perfectly. He wasn't the healer. Christ was. And in Joppa, he sends all these widows out of the room. He, he was not going to put on a display before the crowd that would somehow draw attention to him. He wanted a quiet place to pray. Peter had already been involved in, in numerous healings at this point. And you would think that all he needed to do was just simply say, Tabitha, arise. But just like with Aeneas, Peter knew Christ alone had the power. He also didn't presume to know the will of God in this matter. And so what did he do? He says he knelt down and he prayed. So if you desire to minister faithfully and effectively, then follow Peter's example and express your need of Christ. Express your need of Christ. Prayer is essential to all effective ministry. It acknowledges your dependence upon God. And the essence of prayer is the expression of your dependence upon God through your requests. God, we need you to do this. Paul told the Colossian Christians, he said, devote yourselves to prayer. Why are, why are we to do this? Well, the answer is very simple. It pleases God to be asked for things. God's will is that we, his creatures, ask him for things. And, it, and it's not just his will, it's his delight. The prayer of the upright, Proverbs says, is his delight. He loves to hear your prayers. It is his delight because it shows his glorious sufficiency and our complete neediness. And this is why Jesus says in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus tells us to ask in his name. Right? Why? 
so that the Father may be glorified, so he may look as gloriously sufficient as he truly is. So let this truth about prayer strengthen your resolve to pray, to ask God for help to minister effectively. God wills that you pray. He wills that you, that you ask him for such things. Even more, he delights that you would do this. He really wants you to do it. He wants you to take steps to see that it happens because he enjoys it so much when you pour out your needs before him. So be devoted to expressing your need of Christ. Now after Peter prayed, verse 40 says, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. So nobody else was in the room with him. He'd prayed, he'd asked the Lord for something that was, for all intents and purposes, it was absurd. Lord, please raise Tabitha from the dead. Peter had never done anything like this before. Jesus had though. Peter, Peter was with Jesus the day that he raised the daughter of a synagogue official from the dead. Jesus had told all the mourners to leave the room. And then as Peter watched, Jesus took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. You know, at a funeral, it, it's, it's common for the close relatives to speak to their deceased loved ones. But it's, it's usually just simply an expression of their love, right? of their sorrow. I'm going to miss you. They know the person isn't listening. No one expects the de deceased to reply. But like he had seen Jesus do with the little girl, Peter turns to Tabitha's lifeless body and he says to her, Tabitha, arise. And if you want to minister faithfully and effectively, then you need to expect the power of Christ. You need to expect the power of Christ. Scripture is full of verses that portray God making the impossible possible. When Abraham and Sarah were awaiting the promise of a son, even after they were well past childbearing years, God told them, is anything too difficult for the Lord? In the, in the book of Numbers, when the Israelites were complaining to Moses about food, the Lord took Moses. Uh, the Lord told Moses that he was going to feed over 600,000 people for an entire month. Moses, he was skeptical. But God said to him, is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. In the book of Job, after 42 chapters of trials, Right? Job was able to answer God and say, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. 
And finally, in Luke 1.37, in foretelling the birth of Jesus, the angel Gabriel told Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. When God exercises his power, he does it effortlessly. It's no more difficult for him to create a universe than to make a butterfly. Here's what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, Since he has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. That's the God you serve. That's the God you pray to. And when you catch yourself wondering if God is able to accomplish some task, Realize there's nothing too great for God. God himself says to you, I am the Lord, God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Nothing is too difficult for him because his power is infinite. Another A.W., not Tozer, but Pink. A.W. Pink wrote, Well may the saint trust such a God. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, we might well despair. But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver from, no misery too deep for him to relieve. Can we say that our ministry reflects our firm belief that God is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Do we really believe Jesus when he says in John 14, 13, Whoever, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. See, Christ is exalted when we come to him in faith, believing him to be the one for whom nothing is too difficult. Tabitha, rising from the dead was easy for God. It's easy for us to ask God for the things that are impossible. Or is it? Do you ask God for the things that seem impossible? You should. It shouldn't be difficult. As long as we also believe that everything happens according to the plan and the purpose of God. His will is the ultimate authority. And that was demonstrated even by Jesus himself. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. So this account now closes out with Luke, the telling of us in verse 42, where he says, it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And then Luke adds this. He says, Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. Now, this, this brief little footnote at the end, it, it serves to bridge between this passage in chapter 9 and what's coming with the conversion of Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, in chapter 10. Luke tells us that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And this, again, this may not seem like a big deal to you or to me, but the fact is, is that tanners were despised 
by first century Jewish society. They dealt with the skins of dead animals. No good Jew would fellowship with a tanner, let alone enter his house and stay there. It was considered an unclean occupation and Simon would have been shunned by the local synagogue. And so what is Peter doing? He's not letting his former prejudices hinder his present ministry. There's no place in a faithful and effective ministry for prejudice. Prejudices divide. And so instead, we must work hard to enhance the unity of Christ. You need to enhance the unity of Christ. This is what you need to be doing in this body of believers. Enhancing the unity of Christ. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he adds this, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, we walk unworthily of our calling in Christ if we disregard the unity of the body and we don't expend any effort to safeguard what Christ died to obtain. Be diligent, Paul says. Be eager. Be earnest to keep and preserve the unity given by the Spirit of God. Let's not forget as well that before the Spirit could give this unity, Christ first had to obtain this unity. And Paul explained in chapter 2 of Ephesians that Christ himself is our peace and that the enmity between Jew and Gentile, it could only be abolished in his flesh, he says. And that he reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross. And so how can we walk worthily of our calling if we are not diligently keeping that which Christ shed his blood to obtain? That means that in a small body of believers like this, that you all understand that there's more work to be done than there are people to do the work. But even in any body of believers, there's always that 80-20 rule. 80% of the work seems to be done by 20% of the people. You think that might be a slight cause for disunity in the body when you feel that other people aren't doing the work that they should be doing? Guard yourself against this. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love will help you to over, overlook things that, that you think are slights towards you or, or things uh, that that are hard for you to put together to say, how can they not be doing what I think they should be doing? You know, if you see sin with another brother, you need to go talk with him. Another sister, you need to go talk with her. You can't afford to give Satan any foothold in a small body because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It happens quickly. But if you come speaking the truth in love, with the effort of not complaining to them, but seeking because you see sin to correct and, and they listen to you, you've won your brother. But there's going to have to be a whole lot of love in Christ to overlook the things that so easily disrupt the unity. And that's exactly what Christ would have you to do. Now let's pause for a moment to note something that Paul doesn't say here. Paul says to diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit. He doesn't say to preserve the uniformity of the Spirit. As I was reading on this subject, Spurgeon 
made a very helpful observation. Quoting from a sermon that he preached on this text in Ephesians, he says, The Spirit does not recognize uniformity. The analogy of his work in nature is against it. The flowers are not all tinted with the same hue, nor do they exhale the same odors. There is variety everywhere in the work of God. And if I glance at providence, I don't perceive that any two events happen after the same form. The page of history is varied. If, therefore, I look into the church of God, I do not expect to find that all Christians pronounce the same shibboleth or see with the same eyes. In other words, unity and uniformity are two different things. The unity of the Spirit, the, uni the unity that the Spirit gives, it can be maintained amidst a variety of practices, preferences, pursuits. We do not all have to like the same things or do the same things or do them the same way to love Christ to the same degree. Now, so whether you homeschool or whether you put your kids in public or private school, that should never be a hindrance to keeping the unity of the Spirit. You may prefer the old hymns to the new ones. You may prefer organ to guitar. Right? You, such preferences, they shouldn't hinder our unity in the Spirit. You may not own a television. You may not listen to anything but Christian music. And you are free to do so. Just don't let it cause any kind of a division in any way with those who do otherwise. There's nothing in Scripture that says that we have to look the same. Sing the same songs. Pray in the same way. Worship with the same style or even eat the same food. Or use the same essential oils is another one to throw out there. These are all things that we can do differently and still love Jesus just as much. How honoring to God it is to have a variety of personality and preferences within the church as we see in creation and at the same time we see the unity of the spirit beautifully and diligently preserved and that's why paul said what he said in verse 2 he said the, the character traits that will preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace what are they humility gentleness patience forbearance and love and so he says that a life worthy of our calling and leading to unity, it's with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. If you are humble, you will be gentle. And if you are patient, you will be forbearing and enduring. And if you are gentle and forbearing in love, then you will be a peacemaker. You will be a unity preserver. And so be diligent and eager to be humble a patient person by the power of Christ. There's so many things I remember Pastor Steve saying. And as, as it became clear that it was, I was going in a direction towards ministry and all that and different things would pop up, I can still hear him saying, Go low, Nick. Go low. Go low. He'd always say that. With one another. Go low. Hear Steve speaking to you. Echoing the scriptures. Go low, Christian. You'll be preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We must seek to exalt the person of Christ in all that we do, especially when it comes to ministry. 
Peter exalted Christ in the following six ways. He encouraged the people of Christ. He emphasized the hope of Christ. He expressed his need of Christ. He exhibited the power of Christ, or expected the power of Christ. He exhibited the love of Christ, and he enhanced the unity of Christ. And if we do the same, if you will do the same here at Redeemer Bible, then you will be enjoying ministering faithfully and effectively for Christ also. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at the thought that that you would use sinners like us to exalt the name of your son. We don't even deserve to utter his name. How many times have we uttered his name in, in vain as a curse word? Yet his name is the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Oh, thank you for giving us tongues that want to exalt and praise him. Oh, I pray for Redeemer Bible that they would be a true light that you have placed here in this community to draw men and women and children to faith in your son. I pray that they would do it not only with their words, by their actions, that people who come in here from the outside look in and and they see something they haven't seen elsewhere a body of believers who truly love each other and demonstrate it in a multitude of ways. Glorify your son through Redeemer Bible. That's why they're here. That's why you've planted them here, so that would happen. And may they pour themselves out like a drink offering, serving you until you say, well done, and bring them home. We ask this in Christ's name.